I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Okay, cool. It is working this time. Great. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I'm ready to rock this out. Um, Yeah. Jen, do you know who's supposed to go first? Michael, do you know who's supposed to go first? Um, I Let me just... I can check what our last What did we do last was. week? Joan and... and uh, oh, God. Who was mine? <laughs> oh uh, no Barbara Jordan oh Barbara that's right what a hoot um, she was I forgot to tell you one thing at the end of that which I just now remembered it? Viola Days- Davis has like optioned the rights to her life story to like play her which I think would be awesome that would so be I think that's currently like in development a biopic about Barbara Jordan and I also didn't mention that did she did I mention this that she had a partner for her whole adult life. And so it was never like so. confirmed and she wasn't necessarily out and open, but it was it was generally thought that she had a domestic partnership with a woman for 30 yeah. odd years. Her companion is what it's called in like all the documents I read, but I forgot to give voice to that and if that's important. You know, I didn't want to like shortchange her story, but those mm-hmm. are two little anecdotes that I totally just blanked on last time, which is my fault. It happens. You know. I feel like now people will be really excited. They'll get to hear this episode and be like, oh my God. Yeah. My mistake. I did not I did not mean to just glaze over that part of her life. I think I was just caught up in playing clips of her on YouTube and listening to the voice of God. So <laughs> I think it happens to the best of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a couple of like more like Hildegard anecdotes. I know that's like throwing it way back a couple of episodes. That is a while back. Crazy um, nun. Definitely... Crazy yeah, nun boxed we're... in with a tiny little thing, right? That's her story. Um, yeah, because this is sort of letting people know like what our re- recording schedule is. Cause, like, I know, right? That just dropped last week, and here we are recording. Is this episode nine now? Are we sure. that far in? Sure. I'm not keeping track, but sure. Yeah. Nine. That sounds right. Nine. Yeah. Um, but we got some really great feedback from a history professor who was listening to the podcast who oh, shared no. with us this really great anecdote um, that apparently Hildegard um, was confronted by a fellow nun from a different monastery at one point critiquing Hildegard's practice of like having her nuns dress in white and like look nice and like occasionally would like wear jewelry and sort of present themselves in a way that might not necessarily associate with like the monastic life like a little bit showier uh, and Hildegard is apparently supposed to have responded something along the lines of well if we're supposed to be the brides of Christ don't you think you'd probably want us looking good and I just thought like I had totally missed that I was trying to find like a sassy Hildegard quote when I was researching the episode and then here my professor just like comes in clutch wow. with the great quote that's um, great so we'll post that to our social media so we can get the exact wording of it I feel like yeah I yeah I like Hildegard that's a good name that name could come back you know what I mean 
I think so. I wa- I'm so curious if like it is like a name in circulation in Germany at all. Oh, it might be. Hildy. Like, we could right? bring it back. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just gonna pause for a second, Jen, to like move my shit around. Hang on. Okay, great. Okay. Do we figure out who's supposed to go first? I think I'm supposed to go first this week. That sounds great. Okay, hang on. <laughs> Yay! I'm so excited. Okay, I'm ready. Are you ready? Awesome. So I've got today not one woman, but 13 women. (gasps) And I don't know if that's allowed. Are we going to allow that? It might be the same ones I have. Oh, okay. Oh, Oh, no. Whoops. Who are your women? I don't know. Do they have something to do with Mercury? They do. Oh, no. Oh no, are we going to tandem this? I this is the first time this has happened. Oh yes. my god. Okay. How do we do this? I don't even I know. Don't, so I'm so I'm curious what what brought them up on your radar. Well, I had talked to Megan about them in like they are women I had read about before and due to my lackluster uh, approach to researching this week, I was like, I already know that story. I just need to like kind of codify it and clean it up a little. And so it was it was a little it was a little less work on my part, which is so not fair because they're really brilliant. But um, I had known about them already. So I, that was my logic. And also they're kick ass. And John Glenn is in a story. I don't know. And I like space, you know, spoilers. It's about space. Um, yeah, I really I don't know. Jen, what would be most entertaining? <laughs> do you think? OK, <laughs> I guess we should jointly do it then. Yeah. Okay. Let's... Do you want to get to like? Know. I feel like you probably did better research because that's you. I don't think we want to say better. I just didn't know anything about thorough? them. So like, really Super just thorough had to, like, then. jump in and be like, "Wow, this is amazing." This is definitely on the list of like, "How did I not know about this?" These are such cool women. Yeah. Like, I think maybe we should tell people who we're talking about before we go yeah. any further. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, just a little context. I'm also fascinated by space because I grew up in Florida, and so we would go to the C- Cape Canaveral like all the time for field trips and stuff. I didn't go to space camp. Did I go to space camp? I don't know if I did. We went there a lot on field trips. We went as a family. Mm-hmm. We got to see John Glenn go up in like the late 90s when they did the elderly, wow. like the testing on like what an older person would do in space. Yeah. So... Very, I mean, we would see space shuttles land all the time, like the little vapor trails and stuff, and you would hear the sonic booms and things like that. So that's also why it's kind of interesting to me, because it's so tied up in what I remember about being cool about Florida, because Florida gets a lot of crap, but there's a lot of, (laughs) this is one really cool element about Florida as well, is that our space program is sort of featured there. Um, Indeed it is. But yeah, so today we... I can't believe we did this. Why didn't we check? Ugh. We have like... Don't we... We were supposed to have like we're a whole system to, like, where we send I these know, to Jen I, in advance. We didn't. And I think we both I didn't. didn't. <laughs> did you? I didn't. Yeah, okay. Great. Oh, well. Listen, it had to happen at some point, right? Yeah, and I think it'll be great because there's so much to talk about with them. There really is. I mean, I... I will say I I sort of focused on one in particular. Um, so I'm interested to hear about the other ladies. But oh, see, I also focused on one in particular. Was, was her last name Cobb? 
Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, because she is kind of like the main, (laughs) she's the main hero of this story, of this like screenplay we're talking about that should exist. Um, Second question, did you watch the Netflix documentary about them? No, I did not. Me neither. I haven't watched it yet. I watched watched some clips of it, but I haven't sat down and watched the whole thing. So this is all via other research, but I'm going to, without seeing it, recommend it because I bet it's really good. Um, See, interesting, because I, well, we should maybe get into this at the end, but I read a review of it that has, like, a different, has some thoughts on it. Oh, okay. Um, and I think that, like, a good jumping off point for those thoughts would be, what would be the name that you would use for this group of women? Oh, interesting. I'm going to yeah. mull that over. Hang on. Okay. So, the one I'm working with is... Flats or first lady astronaut trainees, because um, that's what they were referred to internally by the um, the sort of the organization that ended. Yeah, up I saw that, that term a lot. I I, I I take issue with the word lady because I don't yes. think there's a qualifier for a male astronaut, but you know, it's fine. Anyway, do you want to start? You start with Jerry. Okay. Also, I'll kick it off. I I ended up doing like a little bit of context research Mm because the space program is something I think is really cool and I know Mm -hmm. very little, if anything, about it. Okay. I'm here Uh, for you. So the space program. So the space program. Um, So I got really interested in this group because I was listening to another one of my favorite feminist podcasts called Lady Science, which is this group of female science writers talking about a particular issue and they were doing an episode on gender and space oh it's a hoot isn't it reeled me right in Um, some good stories and so the the story that i kind of got like hooked in on is about an early nasa test flight of primates so Mm -hmm. in may 1959 nasa conducts its first space flight in which primates are sent into space and recovered alive so things to remember, anytime an animal goes into space before May 1959, it was intended to die in space. So that was just like a really cheery thing to learn. Because I was sort of figured like, oh, they sent like a dog up to space and then the dog comes down in a little capsule and they rescue it. No, no, they didn't. Yeah. Um, but so in 59, they send the first set of primates up who are meant to be recovered. Um, it's two female monkeys named Abel and Baker. Um, and they're sent specifically to test the physiological impacts of re-entering the Earth's atmosphere on the human body. Mm. And the fascinating thing about Abel and Baker is that when they come back, they're treated very differently and almost entirely on like very odd gendered lines. Um, So Abel dies pretty soon after her return. She gets taxidermied and is installed in an exhibit in the Air and Space Museum in DC and is presented as this like prototypical male astronaut. So is put in like a capsule in like an astronaut uniform and is shown like sort of at work. But she's Um, a female, it's a female primate? But it is a female monkey. Um, And Baker on the other hand lives um, for years after the experiment and gets installed in a zoo in this sort of like American housewife exhibit. Oh my god! Um, they even like arrange a wedding with another, like with a male monkey. What? Um, and like set her up as this like idyllic sort of American domestic wife prototype in a way, uh, which makes 
no sense to me because it's like what? he went into space. Like, I'm curious about when defend... that happened. If they sent uh, him up in 59, when was she like doing this skit early, at a zoo? Early 60s. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so pre, I'm pretty sure pre-68. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so it's just this like fascinating. And so this, and this is all based on research um, from Jordan Blum, who's a postdoc at Princeton, who is on the Lady Science podcast talking and just like diving really deeply into these odd gendered encounters with these monkeys who are obviously like they're not human. So they're being totally anthropomorphized. But the way they're being anthropomorphized is gendered and in such radically different ways. Um, yeah. And I was like, that's fascinating. There has to be more here. And of course, there's like so much more there because this, as with everything, especially everything in America in the mid-century is like riddled with sexism. Warped. Like, yeah, it's a bit warped. Del- so you just you, you can't step through anything without being like, ooh, that's sexist. That's problematic. Sexist. Yeah. Um, and so in sort of digging more deeply into that, um, the the thing that kind of got me interested and got me onto the um, this group of really badass female potential astronauts um, was looking at like how did they decide who the first astronauts were going to be? Because mm-hmm. um, it's it's that weird thing of like how do you set the job requirements for a job that no one has ever done and that's mm-hmm. like literally out of the, this world? Um, yeah, and. I mean, obviously, like, the way you do that is, like, you make really good guesses and you, like, talk to people who've done similar things. Right. Um, And NASA decides that, like, the most similar job to being an astronaut is being a military test pilot. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why all of the early astronauts are these, like, sort of hotshot fighter pilots. All of them are military. All of them are coming from, like, a flying background. You can see... Well, you Um, can see the correlation, right? And it's just... It's jet... Technology has just started to kind of become a thing. So even, like, the airplanes of even the 30s are vastly different by the end of the war. So... Yeah. When the Um, space program starts to take off, it becomes a correlation of, like, who can actually fly this thing? Well, these are the closest kind of people we have on the planet that look like they could you know handle a rocket yeah yeah. Um, and it's interesting you should mention the jet thing because that ends up being a huge issue right with the lady astronaut trainees because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they have in some cases like two or three times as much flying hours as some of the Mm -hmm. male pilots who get chosen but they're Mm -hmm. all in turboprop airplanes because women aren't allowed to fly jet aircraft at this point for what reason, um, Michael? So that's sort of used as a discounting for them. It's like, yeah, sure, they fly, but they're not flying the most advanced aircraft like these men are. Of course, yeah. no one mentioning the fact that, like, of course they can't fly them because the military has forbidden them from flying them. Yeah, um, but put them in there and see what they can do. Exactly. Um, yeah, can I talk about the space race a little bit? Yeah. So not to cut you short about, like, how we're getting the first astronauts, but also, like, how America is viewing the journey into space in the late 50s is um, instantly Cold War-related because Russia has the... um, is putting the resources into uh, creating this kind of technology, and therefore the U.S., I feel, is kind of trying to match them at the start of it. And Sputnik goes up in 1957, which, as we all know, is, like, the Russian satellite that caused a lot of fervor in like America is like what are they doing they're spying on us we have to kind of like the genesis of the space races with Sputnik I think um both were kind of doing Mm -hmm. their mutual distractions or um um, experiments but that was like 
a big moment. So NASA starts the Mercury Project in 1958, and they're pulling applicants from military backgrounds to be the first astronauts and sort of figuring out what tests they should do, medical tests, psychological tests, you know, how many rounds, what kind of aptitude, and what kind of missions. So I think in that first Mercury class, there's seven astronauts total. I think um, so, yeah. So in the span of 1958 to 1961 is like peak firsts in terms of space travel, which not to give too much away, but Yuri Gagarin becomes the first person in space and he was from the Soviet Union in 1961 and U.S. is right behind him. So it's Alan Shepard goes up a month later. So at every kind of instance of these firsts in space, the USSR is just dominating at a time where... Russia and the United States are very even in terms of, like, dominance of the world and this Cold War heating up. So every time the USSR gets a quote-unquote success, it's quite a punch to the nose for the U.S., especially after such a, um, you know, coming out of the 50s, coming out of post-war, you know, austerity and such. I don't know how to describe it. So anyway... um. The first orbital mission is done by a Soviet in 1961. And then John Glenn goes up and does three orbits in the beginning of 1962. So at all of these firsts, it's Russia, Russia, Russia. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not going well for the people in charge of the United States. They are not enjoying that aspect of the space race. So, no. yeah. Um, and keeping with that... Um, Russia is all, or the Soviet Union is also going to be the first country to send a woman into space. Um, yeah. When in 1963, they send Valentina Tereshkova up. Um, and she, at that moment, she also coincidentally beats the female altitude record sent by one of our previous podcast subjects, Jeanette Picard, mm. in her 1933 flight. Mm-hmm. Um, and but to yeah, be. Yeah, to be clear, the U.S. knew that Russia was training women as early as 1959, according to Jerry Cobb. They had intelligence that that was taking place, which is why this kind of genesis of the Mercury 13 was starting, because it became such a thing of like, you know, who's going to get to another first? We got to get to another first. But then stuff gets in the way. Yes. Um, Should we talk about her? Oh, yeah, no. You go ahead. Can I? I I just. I get in can't there. Not get in there, bring Michael. The Nazis in. Oh yeah, bring them in. Like, yeah. So um, there is this. So I, I think most people will probably know that, like after World War II ended, there were a sort of huge number of German scientists who had participated in some way in some of the um, Nazis' advanced weapon programs that either the U.S. or the Soviet Union sort of kidnapped out of Germany to help them develop their early Cold War systems um, because there's sort of this very quick shift in mentality the moment Germany is defeated where the U.S. is like, no, we're definitely fighting the Soviets next. And like these Germans were making some pretty like radically huge advancements in weapons technology. So like we want them working for us. Um, And one group of them are the German scientists who are working on the V1 and the V2 rockets, which um, technologically sort of form the basis for the American rocket program that sends all of these early astronauts into space. Um, so we can thank the Nazis for that in like a pretty direct way. 
Um, but the thing that I... I'm, I'm not going to do that. Is that okay? I'm not going to think, think that's okay. for anything. Okay, I great. don't think we ever really need to, but I think we probably should be pretty clear with ourselves that like NASA is great, and NASA also owes a lot of its early success to like being totally fine turning a blind eye to like some horrifying atrocities in order to get these scientists to work cool. for the U.S. Because um, they're all pretty either directly complicit in like some version of the Holocaust or in like using slave labor to build the rockets or build the testing facilities um, or they're like directly involved in the Nazi party. So they're like not great people. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that comes along with that um, is these scientists are also involved in setting the specifications for astronauts. And so Mm. one of the like many reasons we end up with this sort of like very fit chiseled like like idealized version of astronauts especially early on is because some of the people involved in the selection process and in setting those requirements are coming from an ideological background that really values that kind of but also to be uh, i mean like let's give the nazis their credit of being total monsters i'm not denying that but i'm gonna say most of the uh, European nations in the late 40s were all pretty big fans of eugenics until they saw like a shitty outcome. So like the idea I mean, of an so ideal exactly that's what I'm saying. All Western countries had this same similar idea that didn't take it to the levels of a certain um, ideology but this idea of like what is perfect? Well it is a white six foot two man with blonde hair and blue eyes. I mean we could still see that today in terms of like what is preferred in media and film and things like that. But, um, you know, it also goes back to, like, what it makes an astronaut. Well, up until this point, we only had fictional versions of that. And if you tell me there's not a correlation between, like, Flash Gordon or, like, hero mm-hmm. tropes of the 30s and 40s going into how we're going to pick these astronauts, it's it's so clearly correlated to, like, hero worship and just like an automatic, you would be the heroes of the, you're the explorer, you're the like, you know, every boy's dream, you know, of being like yeah. the the hero guy with a laser gun. I mean, pre-Luke Skywalker, I guess, but yeah, same kind of vein. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like, that's like, I think one of my favorite veins of like current historical research is there's a bunch of people looking at like science fiction as it directly influences all of these cold war space programs. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's like, it, it's not even subtle. It's just, some of it is like so incredibly obvious. It's like, yep, mm-hmm. you just like really liked that book. And so that's why we're doing it this way. Yep. Yeah. Um, Gotta start which, like, somewhere, I not guess. necessarily the worst thing, but like just like a good thing to like be conscious of. Yeah. Um, But so uh, all of that is to say that NASA lands in this place where the requirements are you have to be younger than 40, you have to be no taller than 5 feet 11 inches, excellent physical condition, Mm -hmm. have a bachelor's degree in engineering or an equivalent subject, be a qualified jet pilot, Mm -hmm. graduate of test pilot school, and have at least 1,500 hours of flying time in a jet. See, I saw even um, 35 and under. Oh, interesting. Was a particular requirement. I'm not sure why that was specified. Um but you saw 40. I wonder if it was different as the years I, went Yeah, on. I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember where I saw that number. Mm-hmm. But it, seems, it cool. seems either way they're looking for, like, young, fit mm-hmm. pilots is what yeah. they land on. Um, Especially, and the, like, starting out in space. 
information gathering, like you have no idea what will happen up there. Like a primate is like a good gauge maybe, but even then you don't even know what will go differently for a person. So I guess the more similar I don't know. I don't want to advocate why they did what they did, but I, I'm there's certain logic to it, but there's also yeah. like a real cutoff of options. Totally. Also, I, mean, yeah, I, you know, I would agree. Like late 1950s, not a peak time to be different in America. So no, definitely not. Yeah. And yeah, not to defend them, but yeah, sure, you can definitely see like their logic is internally consistent with their like beliefs and preconceived notions about like what they're looking yeah. for. Yeah, um, and the forced logic of the time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but of course, the like the thing you then look about is you're like, well. Other than the like test pilot thing, and thus the like the jet engine or the like jet requirements that come from it, all of those other things, like there's nothing to say a woman couldn't meet if not surpass those just as easily as any of those men. I mean, um, let's get there. We'll get there in a minute. I, I feel like that's probably where we're headed. <laughs> cool. Should we talk about Jerry? I think we should talk about Jerry next. All right. Do you want me to start? Yeah. Okay, you butt in because you probably have more details than I do. So I have that she, uh, her name's Jerry Cobb. She's born in 1931 in Oklahoma. Her dad is a lieutenant colonel and a pilot. And from what I can tell, he was super into, like, getting her acclimated with planes and flying at a very young age. And I have that she first flew of plane at age 12 with her dad in the cockpit. So yep. it's something she to. was both encouraged to participate in and given access to and she's flying by herself in her teens she does this thing called barnstorming which is like a stunt flying thing with like those biplanes with the multi-wing and you know going in loop-de-loops and Mm -hmm. doing whiz-bang things all around um and she would also do like promotional uh aspects she would like throw leaflets out of her plane and like hey, there's a carnival coming to town. This is the fastest way to tell everyone. Um, Which has some, like, you know, I feel bad for the planet when we were just throwing paper out of planes, just being like, litter the world! But um, (laughs) I'm sure it was probably the, you know, it's pre-internet. How else do you let everybody know the circus is coming? Um, She's like a go-getter, man. She gets her private pilot's license at 17 and her commercial pilot's license at 18. And so what, that's probably late 40s? Yeah, Uh, early 50s. She's just like cranking it out. Um, I think there's a correlation between this being acceptable for her, too, in terms of like women in the war effort at the time as she's becoming a teenager. Like, yeah, you she probably had examples and like, you know, all those old newsreels of like Rosie the Riveter and, you know, helping our boys on the front line. So there wasn't as much of a... um, societal pressure to not do that however mm-hmm. i did read that she had um some issues when the uh war ended and men were returning home that she couldn't take the job she wanted to take she had to do more uh less flashy jobs or less prestigious jobs she was relegated to like crop dusting or doing patrols or flying the routes that nobody else wanted kind of stuff yeah, um, but I which do I know that think is like a she, typical experience for women after the war. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know that was a really growing pain moment of our country. So um, she's definitely dealing with it. Um, she uh, she taught flight school. 
She she taught other people how to fly, other men typically, not a lot of women pilots at this time. Um, and she's just earning qualifications left and right. She like sets world records in speed and distance. And by the late fifties, she's voted pilot of the year by her peers and gets uh, Amelia Earhart gold medal of achievement. So she's also becoming like not just a pilot, but a pilot recognized by other pilots for being prestigious, regardless yeah, of gender. I also have that she's the first female pilot allowed to fly at the Paris Air Show. Oh, yeah. I saw that, too. Yeah. Which yes. is apparent. I don't know much about the, like, competitive flying world, but that's apparently a really, really big deal. Yeah. Um, so then where are we at? Late 50s? Late so 50s, So NASA's yeah. starting their Mercury program in, like, 1958. Sputnik's gone up. And I would like to enter our new character of Dr. Lovelace, who has the worst name ever. Oh, See, I think I might be able to beat the worst name. Because he goes, he goes by Randy Lovelace, which I think is yes. horrible. Um, um, and his, the person he's working with in the Air Force is named Donald Flickinger. <laughs> Flickinger? Flickinger. <laughs> okay, cool. We're going to take that normally. Um, great. Lovelace is kind of at the forefront of figuring out what kind of medical tests astronauts need to take to be cleared for space travel, male or female. Um, At the time, he's just dealing with men. But as NASA starts to learn about women being trained in Russia to go up, that he kind of gets the light bulb to be like, "Mm, maybe we should start doing that too. I should figure out what women need to do in order to get into space so that we don't fall behind in this way as well. Um, And I also saw that they were were thinking about like, well, we want to save on fuel and be able to make the capsule smaller. And since women are generally like a little bit smaller than men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that too. It's like, mass. It's oh, like, they're lighter and smaller. It's actually like an equipment issue. Like it won't yes, take exactly. as much. It's genuinely like would have been more cost effective because it would have taken less fuel to get them up there, taken less space for them to feel comfortable. I mean, there's also all this kind of probably sexist um ideas about women can do cramped tedious work for longer and men need stimulus and to get around and move and stuff and i think that's a lot of bs but at the time made sense to people i guess um but i want to introduce one other character named jacqueline cochran did you read about her got the same cast of characters it seems yeah she's a hoot and a half anyway she was this other kind of female pilot who became friends with Lovelace earlier in, like, the 30s and 40s. She was a pilot. Um, She had a really well-off marriage. She had a cosmetics company, which is why she became (laughs) a pilot, so that she could easily participate in her cosmetics company in a way that was, like, jet-setting to drop off my lipsticks. I don't actually know. That's that's one thing I read about her. Um, So she was kind of this flashy personality. She was pushing forward, like, the idea of female pilots. And she becomes friends with Lovelace. They actually bond over um, figuring out how to make better oxygen masks for Mm, pilots mm. at higher altitudes. And that was sort of their first foray into, like, working together. Yeah. Um, I also read that she, during World War II, led the the Women's Air Force Service Program, or WASPs. Accurate. um, Yes. Which is this organization that was meant to like free male pilots for war service by having female pilots like fly domestic routes or Mm -hmm. shuttle aircraft to the front um and that when the war ended one of the things she's looking for is like to keep being involved in public service in some way yeah um and so one of the things she's looking at i think is like 
can there be a female astronaut corps and also can I be running it this is the one of the things I read a lot mm-hmm. is that like she seems very interested not just in like supporting it but also in like being in charge yeah. of it she super wanted to run things um so I think through uh Jerry's getting um prestigious kind of media attention at this time pre-nasa and lovelace finds her and he's like oh this would maybe be a perfect kind of guinea pig to see if women are able to you know what's the word i'm looking for be able to pass all these tests so Mm -hmm. my understanding i'm a little confused about like timeline but my understanding is he got jerry to come to his private clinic in oh god Arizona or something? Oh, I, yeah, no. I think so. Is it Arizona? Somewhere in the American South. And he's like, come on, we'll try and figure out the testing to get you cleared. And so she goes through all these crazy tests that just seemed awful, if I may. Please listen. There was like X, numerous x-rays, four-hour eye exams. There was um, specially weighted stationary bikes that they had to just exhaust themselves on to test their like lung capacity because in space you don't know your oxygen is you know it's a whole thing and then there's another one there's like a vertigo test which sounded the oh, worst yeah. this where awful and it's not just he did this to the women because he was kinky and weird he had to do it to the men too but um to test your vertigo they would have to shoot ice cold water in your ear to freeze your inner ear to induce vertigo and then terrible. just measure how long it took for you to, like, get over it. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to help you relieve it in any way. You just had to kind of, like, figure out, you know, how long it would take to feel better. That one seemed terrible. Um, yeah, I don't know. Are there other tests that you saw that were the screwed? One of the other ones I saw is they were they did, like, nerve response tests, mm-hmm. tests by using small electric shocks induced yes, all over your like body. Yes, like, under their armpit. Like, weird... Yep. Weird, creepy places. Um, not creepy, but like... But like unpleasant. Not, not fun. Which it shouldn't be no. fun because you're going into space. But uh, it wasn't like then running on a treadmill. None of it just... It doesn't seem like a thing you go do like on a whim. Like you have to like really yeah. want it to yeah. sit through a week of this. Yeah. Yeah. At least a week. Uh, yeah. And the other... So the Did you read about the multi-axis space test inertia facility? Lord, No. What's so that? this was the thing that I was I was like, first of all, this is a thing that exists. It's apparently like a huge gyroscope that spins on three different axes at the same time. And you put a person in the middle of it with a joystick and they have to like control the system and like stay stable while the machine is trying to like spin them in three different directions at once. Mm. And the machine is spinning in like 30 revolutions per minute so it's like not Mm. a like nice light jog it's like a this thing is serious um when alan shepard does it for the first time he hits the panic button almost immediately (laughs) just like can't handle it um and when jerry cobb does it she manages the test for 45 minutes before stopping oh my god so just like not saying anything but but also it was a given that Alan Shepard was a candidate to be an astronaut. But when you're the mm-hmm. only one, like you have to kind of put yourself, it's that whole thing of just like, you have to work twice as hard for half the credit. Mm, yep. It's that, it's that whole thing. It's just blatantly true in this, in this circumstance. Um, yeah. Um, and I so, think statistically, the, what 
I read was that she, after taking all these tests, placed in the top 2% of everyone who's taken the test, and that includes all of the male astronauts. Yeah, I would say I saw that she matched or outperformed most of the Mercury astronauts. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of these tests are taking place... Uh, 1959, 1960, before NASA even knows that Lovelace is doing this, he's kind of going rogue and figuring out his own research before he gets like certified or like approval necessarily. Because once NASA's involved, you have to deal with government funding and all of that stuff. So I think he was just trying to avoid bringing them in until he knew it could even be possible. So she passes all the unofficial tests. He goes to this symposium in like Sweden or something, and he starts talking about women astronauts. Did you read about this? I did. I didn't get much more than like they went to Stockholm and presented their research, but that seems like a really big moment in mm-hmm. all of the like narratives about this. From what I understand, is like no one knew this was happening, and he goes like, "Actually, I have all this research that it would be fine." And so my understanding is like American media became like, "Ooh." You know, we could, this is pre Alan Shepard going up, Yuri Gagarin going up. It's just, it's the early stages. So it's like this new blonde Oklahoma barnstorming pilot girl can like do the same thing that John Glenn can. How about that? Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. And so she starts to get thrust into like the spotlight in a way that makes NASA have to like sort of consider Lovelace's uh, research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they get like a magazine cover or two. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I and and from and the other thing I was reading is that like this is the moment when Jacqueline Cochran starts getting a little jealous, like a little like doubting yeah. whether she wants to keep supporting this because she's not the one getting all of the attention. Let's talk about Jerry it. Jerry Cobb so, is getting all of the, the attention. Yeah, Jerry Cobb starts to become like the face of women in space, right? While Cochran is quite honestly bankrolling quite a bit of it as well, because she is an yes. independent woman of means. Um, so then there's this whole, uh, once NASA, you know, Lovelace is like, we have all this research. Oh, look at all this great press we're getting. And they're like, great, let's do this. Let's commit to like women in space in a way. We got to do more tests to like research it. So then they offer out to like many women pilots and a certain round, like, pass a certain amount of tests. And then they all go out to the clinic where they're doing all the testing. And Jackie Cochran is actually super helpful and helps pay for them to go out there and helps, like, supply, you know, funding. Because a lot of women at the time were, like, leaving families, leaving responsibility. So they were trying to make it easier on that kind of choice. Yeah. Um, and then my understanding is 12 more pass. At Jerry's level, so then there's 13 women that are kind of ready to get trained to become astronauts. They sort of pass the preliminary tests, and then they're ready for, like, the more um, official training. Yeah, and I read that, so that's 13 out of 19, which is about 68% Mm -hmm. of them passed. And Mm -hmm. out of the male candidates who take the tests, 18 out of 32 pass, so only 56% Mm -hmm. pass. So the Mm -hmm. women are also passing at a much higher percentage. Yeah, I mean, no big deal. Um, I really (laughs) like when you highlight the great things that women do. I'm just like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, that's what what Mm -hmm. I'm here for. Yep. Um, So, Can I I do that one more time really quick? Um, Okay. So in terms of flight hours, out of the Mercury astronaut class, the men averaged a little bit under 3,000 hours in flight command, so like flying an airplane as the primary pilot. Um, 
so Jack, um, so Cobb has 10,000 by the time she takes the tests. One of the other women has 9,000, and then two more each have 8,000. Mm-hmm. And all of the other women have at least 3,000, if not more, flight hours. So they are also all flying so much more than the men. Mm-hmm. And this is at a point where, like, being a woman pilot, period, is an unusual thing. Yeah, it's because they're doing all the crappy routes that aren't, like, A to B. They got to go, like, down, around, through these all little places, lower altitudes, because they can't fly the jets that go higher and faster. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're flying longer. They're not allowed to fly fast things. You guys set us up for that. Um, (laughs) Uh. So, yeah, so I, too, found that Jackie's maybe, um, Jacqueline Cochran is sort of uh, taking issue with not maybe fulfilling her ambition to be the face of women in space. She had such, like, a prestigious background and kind of expertise that she was sort of like, why wouldn't I be considered? But, as we said earlier, at this point, she's in her 50s, and even if she was a man, she would be too old to train as a astronaut. But you can tell she just quite, she doesn't know how to navigate that in a way that benef- that makes her feel great. So she's described as like an advisor of this whole situation. And um, yeah, I have the whole anecdote that her husband writes Lovelace a letter and that she's he's like telling him about how she's sad that she can't be in the female astronaut and she might walk away because you know she just doesn't feel as involved as she would like to be and um he has to go and like appease her and like try to give her a more prominent role but you can tell she sort of loses a little bit of her joy and uh advocation of the program at that point yeah so yeah um so did you, so the the one other testing thing that I read about that just kind of like blew my mind was all of the stuff about the sensory deprivation testing. Mm. Did you read any of that? I did not, sure. Um, so one of the, one of the tests um, in the suite for the male astronauts was a sensory deprivation test. So like how well do you deal with like having all of your senses cut off? Um, and so Lovelace gets into contact with a doctor in Oklahoma City to run this test with Cobb and two of the other female astronaut candidate trainees. And what they do for the women is they put them in a soundproof tank of water at body temperature. So you yeah, have you ever anything, done those? You can't see anything. You don't feel anything. No, I've never done it. And it kind of It's like, terrible. I did not enjoy it. Um, I did it as a form would, of med. I thought it would be relaxing. Mm-hmm. It was not. It was not. It was salty, briny water. That was slightly, I don't, I don't, I think I'm weird because my body temperature is like usually like two degrees lower. So it just felt like a warm-ish bath in the dark. It wasn't great. It wasn't relaxing is what I'll say. I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. I was, I was on edge the entire time. (laughs) I did not care for it. literally the exact opposite of meditation. Yeah. No, it did not help. Did not help me at all. Um, it turns out you're not actually unusual. Most people start hallucinating after about six hours in that kind of tank. Okay, I only did an hour. Why would you be in there longer than six hours? Well, that's the thing. So Cobb lasts nine hours and 20 minutes before Shit. the staff pulls her out because they're afraid something's happening. But she's like, she's as fine as you can be after being in a sensory deprivation tank for nine, nine hours and 20 minutes. Hours. Nine, nine hours. Nine hours and 20 minutes. 
and the staff pulls her out. Like she doesn't bail. <gasps> she's not like let me out. Like Jerry, like, we're worried about you. And then two of the other, the two other women who do it, both last ten hours before they get pulled by the staff. I bet they were like, "Ugh, this is great. No one's bothering me for like ten minutes. <laughs> I don't mind it." Like <laughs> they probably actually did enjoy it as meditation. That's why. That's how it was like advertised to me i saw it like Mm -hmm. oh this is a new way to unwind you don't even know how long you're in there and all i could do was like count minutes i couldn't shut my brain up at all Mm -hmm. so yeah i am not i am not for that system of relaxation but clearly they were just loving it they love the weird salty brine bath water i didn't go i was and i was just kind of like stunned because like the thought of like not only are they like almost doubling the time but they're almost doubling the time at which other people started hallucinating and they're just like yeah we're fine yeah it's great um so chilling here interesting like the footnote to that whole story is so you'd imagine like okay well like if the male astronauts had to do that like of course they're going to make the women do that and like even if Mm. it's kind of like unpleasant the male astronauts at least as john glenn recounted in his memoirs their sensory deprivation test was being put in a dark soundproof room with a chair and a table and some pencil and paper and just made to sit there in the dark for three hours. He remembers writing poetry to kill the time. So a little different. different. Um, different. It's fine. Okay. Um, so where are we timeline wise? We're in the early sixties. Okay. So I think like, yeah, like late 1961, I think we're right about to get to the point where this goes from being the inspiring story that we all want it yes, to be to the I know. disappointing story we all know and it's going let's, to be. And let's blame our favorite American, John F. Kennedy. No, <laughs> it's the early 60s. I mean, that it's a joke. Everyone calm down. Um, but it's also a little true. It's it's the early 60s. He just got in there. You know, everyone thinks he's just a good head of hair and he's getting his he's getting his ego bruised by the Soviets in this space race. So as soon as I forget when I said, let me look back here. When did all those guys go up? It's all happened so, so fast. Hold on. It's Yeah, like it's mid so, to late 1961. OK, so yeah, so. Yeah, Yuri Gagarin goes up, Alan Shepard goes up, and then in May of 1961, JFK is like, by the end of this decade, I can't do a JFK impression, by the end of this decade, we will put a man on the moon, or whatever he says. We will send a man to the moon. I don't know. He he promises the moon, literally. And, um, you know, when the president says, your guys are going to go to the moon in a decade, then NASA's like, well, we have to go to the moon, because guess who's paying our bills? The government. So the leader of the government said we have to go to the moon. So then all of a sudden, NASA's focus becomes not just about, like, general space travel and information gathering. They have a genuine mission, and they are stratospheres away from achieving that goal. And even (laughs) though they've been able to send people up in pretty well amount of time, the fact that they're putting people up in such quick kind of, with success in such a quick amount of time, you know, it still was an unfathomable goal. But, you know, all cylinders start to crank onto, like, how do we get a man on the moon? And I think he does say we would send a man to the moon. So he already kind of limited who could go. Um, So then their goal is send a man to the moon. And I think they took that very literally. And so at this time, it becomes a thing of, like, get him up there. Don't let the Soviets beat us again. And um, 
congressional funding is cons- consistently required. Like NASA has to advocate for itself in Congress. And we all know how congressional hearings go. So it's a rough audience to ask for money. Um, so, you know, it's it's a murky time for the Mercury 13. It's like, at one point, I found an anecdote that like, Lovelace is informed that testing will be canceled for the women, but it actually was just like a weird red tape error and no one had actually cleared that to be canceled. So then Jerry Cobb goes out to Washington and is like, what do you mean our funding's canceled? And there's no paper trail and it's all a bunch of BS, which like stalls everything. Did you read that? I So I the way I was framed in what I was reading is that kind of blames Jacqueline Cochran for it all falling apart. Oh, um, I, a, yeah. Apparently Cobb of course it had does. done... Well, and so this is what I find so deeply fascinating about this story is that, like, it's about these women trying to do this thing. And at the same time, it seems like there's another woman who is very directly responsible in a lot of ways for preventing them from doing it. Um, Yeah. And that kind of, like, tug and pull and, like, the expectation of gender solidarity and that being so thoroughly not fulfilled in this situation. Yeah, that's gross. Um, Yeah. So so what I read was that Cobb went down to the Naval School of Aviation Medicine in Florida in 1961 to do like the second round of tests. So they mm. all they passed the first round, and now they're doing like really specific pilot testing. So like more physical and mental tests, but also doing like high altitude exposure testing, g g load training, um, having to like escape from submerged airplanes. Sort of the like full suite that like if you were going to go be like a Navy pilot, here are all the things you have to be able to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And so Cobb does that unsurprisingly scores at the same level, if not higher than most of the Navy's like experienced test pilots. Um, And so they're they're planning to like bring the rest of the women down later in the year to do all of that testing. But of course, like none of this is official because it's not approved by NASA. It's not like a government project. It's just like Lovelace knows all of these people because he was doing the testing with the male astronauts. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. he like has all of his friends be like, hey hook me up but like it's not official it's all in the dl and so cochran in being upset and also in being like a very well-connected woman who like has all of these connections in washington from when she was running the wasps ends up writing to the deputy chief of naval um, operations so sort of the like one of the top people in the navy who's understandably so a little surprised to find out that like this private lab is using all of these Navy resources to do something that's not an official government program at all. Um, The Navy is again, unsurprisingly a little unhappy about this. And I think that's the point where they're like, no, you can't use our facilities anymore. Like these tests are canceled. Mm. You like, we're not going to let you do this. And apparently at least the, the way the like anecdote is framed is like most of the women found out like as they were literally leaving their houses the morning to head to the tests like some of yeah, them got a call as they were leaving which is just like so heartbreaking because two of them <laughs> over the course of the test get fired from their jobs because they're doing so much traveling for it and others of them have, like put parts of their lives on hold or like totally diverted a lot of resources to this and to just like have that plug pulled out from under them with mm. such little notice and so little explanation must have been incredibly frustrating Ugh, so gross so the culmination of this, like, Cobb-Cochran conflict is, like, this hearing. Can I talk about the hearing? Love to. Okay, great. Let's talk about this hearing. So the House of Representatives has a committee on science and astronautics, which I don't think is a word, 
but they made it one. It was a word at the time. Um, it was like, I read that it was to investigate discrimination of women astronauts. Mm-hmm. It was mainly, it was a lot of things. So three women or three people are allowed to speak for the women. Three people are allowed to speak against, you know, what's the benefit of having women in space. Um, Cobb and another trainee, Janie Hart, get to argue in favor. And they were firm and they argued that um, women, uh, NASA should really start to fast track women in space in order to get one up before the Soviet Union does. Spoiler alert, we don't. But this is before Valentina, so we don't know that yet. Um, she she cites her test record. She cites that she had passed all the same tests that the Mercury astronauts had done. And they were ready to fly at any moment. And um, the whole crux of it was jet training, right? Like the one requirement that the women weren't able to achieve was that they didn't have flying a jet engine at the level that these military pilots had. But her argument was that they have passed all the same tests, one of which was not flying a jet. Um, they had equivalent experience. They had more split. They had more, as you said, hours in the air than most of the men did. And they would have been just as successful. So then Jackie Cochran takes the floor. And from my understanding, she shows up halfway through their testimony And then she gets to speak and she gets up there and she's like, you know what? Why rush? You know, it's it's just there's no I'm an American and I believe as Americans, we have got to prioritize putting a man on the moon. We got to get those Soviets. We got to get them where it hurts. And that's the moon. We got to put boots on the ground on the moon. And those Mm -hmm. boots should belong to a big strapping fella. So. She just sort of cuts the legs off from them because she not only is like arguably like she to, to anybody looking at the testimony, she's a pilot. She knows what she's talking about. She has credibility. She's been supplying the funding for these women to get training. So if even she is like, oh, what's the harm in waiting? It's fine. We, we're good. And um, that's apparently all it really took. To be like, yeah, no, we're good. Let's move on. Let's not. Let's really focus all of our time and energy on getting the moon stuff figured out, and all yeah, the other firsts uh, can come later. But like, not to let the men off the hook. Like a couple of male astronauts. I were know. To I, I know. Uh, I don't want to talk about John Glenn. He does. He I does such a bad to. job. I know. So like, John Glenn comes to these hearings and is one of he the does. one of three male astronauts speaking on this <sighs> issue. Um, and they testify uh, three delightful things. Thing one, that there's a lack of interest in women pursuing astronaut training. 100% false. Mm-hmm. That there's a lack of women who are qualified to be astronauts. Mm-hmm. And that the prevailing social norms would not accept a woman in this role. Therefore, we it's can't It's fundamentally false. There's a whole article that I read online about the the moral dilemma of John Glenn receiving fan mail from little girls and how they said, oh, Captain Glenn, I want to be just like you, except I'm a girl and 15. Oh, I would love so much to be an... Like, he had the evidence literally in his mailbox that that first thing was completely false. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You just... You're a lying liar face. I like John Glenn, too. Okay? He was flawed. He was of his time. I'm going to say that. He did a lot of good. I'm not going to say he didn't do a lot of good. You shouldn't, you know, judge him based on this one stupid thing that he was clearly not alone in thinking. But 
wasn't a great moment for him. And I will say, as someone who arguably thinks of John Glenn as, like, a heroic figure and, like, someone to be admired and... I mean, did you see him in Hidden Figures? Oh, my God. Just a shiny little toothpaste ad every time he was on stage. But (laughs) I will say in 1965, he had changed his tune a little bit. And I think he, I think he, I don't want to advocate for his stupid logic, but I do think he subscribed to the view of like astronauts of that era were jet fighting, military trained, masculine, you know, hero soldier dudes. As did a lot of NASA. But even in the later 60s, it becomes more of a scientific yeah. um, a scientific uh, goal-setting group. Like, it's not to go to space to, like, put a man in space. But it's also, like, we must collect rock samples and understand geology and chemistry and things. And so as astronauts become more scientific-based and less military-based, he starts to see the oh, it's a wider thing. It's not just a military branch, which up until that time was completely male. So take that for what you will. He does change his tune is what I'll say a little bit, as much as a man in the mid 60s could. You know what I mean? He did it. He did a little step. And I do think all those letters probably helped. You know, you can't read. I'm Victoria and I would love to be an astronaut, but I'm a girl. You know what I mean? You can't. He had to have that eat away at him a little bit, I think. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <sighs> but, yeah, it was super uh, disappointing. Yeah. And the the, la- the like the last bullet point I have from this is nothing came from the hearings, period. Yeah, I know. Me too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have um, – it was cut short at the end of the second day. Yep. They were just like, oh, that's all we need to hear. Bye. We're done. Um, yeah. And, like, and for context, yeah. this is about, it's about two years before Congress passes its first – set of civil rights legislation like yeah. it is kind of a little bit in the it is civil rights broadly are very much in the like mm-hmm. public eye at this moment mm-hmm. but the conversation around like women and women's equality isn't really going to kick off until the like late 60s and so yeah they're like when does so valentina goes up in 1963 in june and i mm-hmm. think in a way like Cobb and the mercury 13 were sort of so jazzed by that because they're like see nothing bad will happen oh it's such a great thing like look it can it's it can be achieved we should do it on the flip side everyone was like well the whole reason we were going to put a woman up was to do it first and we won't get that so let's just scrap it Mm -hmm. and so they really just have the final nail in the coffin of like no rush let's move on to the moon yep Um, it takes us 20 years to get our first woman into space yeah it's fine it's Uh, fine you know it's like yeah but i love and once again the russians send up another woman before sally ride by a few weeks her name is fetlana saviskaya and uh we still can't get it done do you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i we did get that man on the moon i will say neil armstrong you are a treasure and buzz aldrin all those dudes um we did do the moon thing but you do kind of see in the narrative of the space program, according to United States, it's like so skewed to the moon because mm-hmm. we were second in literally everything else, it feels like. <laughs> anyway, yeah. we did great. Cape Canaveral is a treasure. You guys should go. It's super fun. Um, yeah. And the thing the thing I can't not mention, because this was perhaps the funniest part of this, is when Sally Ride is getting ready to go up 
Oh some no! Of the people packing. Yeah. Ask, Can we talk like, about it? <laughs> how many how many tampons do you need? And their proposal was like, we could send you up with like a hundred for like a six day mission. And she just kind of would that be enough? And she's like, that's too many. Have you guys met a woman before? No. There's a whole dollop podcast. If you're a fan of some comedy times about women in transportation. Let me tell you at every moment that a woman could get some agency by taking her own personal transport in any way, including getting on a space shuttle and going to outer space. There have been some dumb, dumb questions about what it will do to her physical body. And that was actually a big argument against sending women into space. It was like, what will happen to the blood? We don't know. We just don't know. We just don't know, and we can't risk it. Genuine argument by a scientist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, like, Take a definitely risk. don't have gender issues in science at all. We've, like, we've moved past that by the 80s. I'll also say the only exam that men didn't have to take to go into space was a gynecological exam. So we had that going for us, too. You know, mm-hmm. special, um, you know, being a woman's great. Uh, so, yeah, just about other. I mean, the rest of Jerry Cobb's life, this was like she was in her she was 30 when all of this was going down. So she had quite a bit of life left to live. So she. um she ends up still flying for the rest of her life, and she does a really long, beautiful career doing a lot of missionary work in South America. I have that she she flew routes to, like, discover better pathways. You know, she did, like, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Some pathfinding? Pathfinding. Maybe that's it. Yeah, sure. But she also dropped off, like, food and medical supplies to really remote regions of south america and um many countries like honored her for that uh ecuador peru brazil colombia and the french all gave her kind of different accolades over the years by her missionary work which i found super exciting um one other little like lemon juice in the wound is that the one space shuttle uh launch i saw was john glenn going up in the late 90s when he was in his 70s um, we went and we watched it. It was in the afternoon and we got to see the space shuttle take off. Um, and I think a couple, a year or two after that, they tried to do the same for Jerry Cobb. They were like, let's send an old, older lady up. And it did not get traction. <sighs> so she had a chance and they still were like, no. But I'll say this. She's 87. She's still around. Let's get her up in that rocket. Yeah. Where's Tesla when you need him? Put that girl up in a rocket. She's ready. She could do it. Yeah, she'd be great. Um, and the thing I found so interesting about the sort of the late '90s period for this group is apparently most of them didn't meet each other while the program was happening. Like they mm. sort of they they did t- their tests maybe like alone or with a pair, um, but they didn't actually gather as a group until the first U.S. space mission piloted by a woman happened in 1995. Oh, you read um, my mind. And so that's sort of the, the first Collins. time they got together as a group. Yeah, there's a lot of really good photos of them in like yeah. some sweet sweaters. If you know the 90s, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> a turtleneck with a sweater on top of it. Anyway, they're super cute. Um, but Eileen Collins is like, oh, yeah, she was she was something else on the space shuttle, but she, she is the first woman to be um, assigned as pilot. Pilot and maybe also to like command a shuttle mission. And command. It's like the first kind of like leading role right so the other first women were um sally ride we all know which was in 1984 
And then the first African-American woman was Mae Jemison in 1992, which thanks to Star Trek for that, because she saw Uhura on the TV show and was like, ah, oh, I could go to space. Lo and yes, behold, she did. Thank you, science fiction. Thank you, science fiction. You are essential. And um, and then Eileen Collins, and she she has this whole ceremony where Bill Clinton gets to like say that she's going to be the first commander of a space shuttle. Um, first female commander of a space shuttle and she gets up there and she goes like I want to thank all the women that came before me I could not have done this like she's basically cites women who flew and couldn't fly as like a reason that she's here both planes and space shuttles because she was clearly aware of like the importance that's awesome Um, yeah she's really cool uh yeah what a hoot and then yeah yeah uh Jerry Cobb's still alive I think she's living in Oklahoma still Um, There's some good clips of her on YouTube talking about she has to do this interview with a guy who's like, explain why women should go into space. And she's like, it's right before the hearing, I think. And it's before Valentina. goes. No, it's right after Valentina goes up. So it's like 63. She's already had the hearing. My mistake. And she can tell she's just tired of having this fight again. And she's like, well, yeah, you know, I hate to say that I, it would be good to be the good first Western woman to go up. Because as you know, Valentina went up a couple weeks ago. And you could tell she's like, we could have done it, but no one listened to me. You know, kind of um, mm-hmm. biting her tongue quite a bit, but still trying to advocate for her cause. Yeah, it's a shame, but it's also incredibly admirable. Yeah. Definitely. They're they're all pretty cool. And there's obviously 12 other women that we didn't talk about. Do you have their names? I do. I've got the full I've got the list of all of the women who passed the initial test. Yeah. Um so the other 12 are Wally Funk, Irene Leverton, Myrtle K. Cagle, Jane B. Hart, Jean Nora Stumbau, Jerry Sloan, Rhea Hurl, Sarah Gorlick, Bernice B. Trimble Stedman. Jane Dietrich, um, Marianne Dietrich, their sisters, and then Jean Hickson. So cool. So, so yeah, there's a cool. Netflix documentary about them. What did you want to talk about the title? So the so the review of it that I read in doing my research took issue with the documentary sort of broadly in terms of like it not being... It, it apparently doesn't approach the issue from both sides quite as much as the, the reviewer would have liked it to. It's like very much just like talking to the people involved with the program about the program as opposed to like trying to get perspectives from people who weren't fans of the program. Um, but the title Mercury 13, the argument goes like makes it sound like it's a more official NASA program that is somehow like related to or supported by NASA or the government in a way that like obviously really wasn't like it's sort of like in like almost against the wishes of nasa at times um and so they were i think that's okay (laughs) i mean i don't when you were clearly wrong like mm, i'm okay with it so the name so i agree i like to call them mercury 13 because it elevates them to the level of the mercury 7 and the only thing that kept them from actually taking off in space was a space shuttle but they passed and well yeah i mean yeah but but like they they could have done it i mean they didn't but at the same time they did all the training that the other ones did so totally i think it elevates them in a way in terms of like how to treat their commitment to what they were doing. Um, 
And I guess it's up to them if they want to be called that or not. But yeah, and I, de- I mean, I definitely I would agree it is a better name than First Lady Astronaut Trainees. Yeah, screw that. Like, That's a terrible name. Any name that has "lady" as a modifier. Call them Lovelace's gals. How about that? Is that problematic? I think the, lo- the Lovelace thirteen is a term that I came across in some of my reading, or like yes. Lovelace's astronaut trainees, or like That's something like wherein a... like his name is the possessive, and I'm like. That doesn't That's feel like great a Svengali either. situation that I'm not a fan of either. Um, let's just call them. I mean, I want to call them the Mercury 13. You can call them whatever you want. Jerry okay. and the team. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, cool. Space travel. It's a hoot. Yeah. I'm going to watch that Netflix documentary. Collaborative episode. I know. Ever. Unplanned. We're so prepared. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to try and be better at the process of like letting you know who I'm going to do. Same. We can do a little bit more work ahead yeah. of time. But in the meantime, our listeners, let us know. Did you enjoy this dual episode? Is it something that like we should do every once in a while? Was it something oh, that you yeah. were like, don't ever do this again? Like, Fair. what are yeah. your thoughts? Yeah. Please, please let us know. You know where to find us. Uh, we have a Facebook page. We have Twitter. We have Instagram. Please us. rate and review us and subscribe. Yes, please. Please, please or we'll just get more annoying. It helps other people find the podcast. You can share your thoughts and opinions in a way that everyone else in the world can see. And who doesn't? And hopefully, a constructive criticism way. Like, don't be a dick. The internet is full of them. You're not special. Um, (laughs) So, okay. On that uplifting note, (laughs) till next time, Michael. This is wonderful, Katie. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.